Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Yaakov Wolby from Houston, Texas. Keep in mind, we did just come from an event at the Stein, so he's all warmed up. I think it was about an hour and a half ago that we started that. Thank you, everyone who contributed and made this possible. And of course, thank you for coming. And uh, without further ado, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. It's an absolute joy to be in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was nice to meet everyone of you that I've met. I really appreciate the warm welcome that I've received. I don't know exactly what went into arranging this amazing event, but I know that Ari's been in touch with me on an ongoing basis for several weeks already, uh, and David as well. And I really appreciate all the work that y'all have done and all the work that everyone else has done to bring me in here and to make this possible. When the idea of combining Musser and the Holocaust came up, I immediately thought I knew what I wanted to talk about. And that is the story of Rabbi Abraham Grudzinski. He was an exemplar of, of Musser. He was the dean of the renowned Slabatka Yeshiva, which is the first yeshiva to introduce Musser as a core element of its curriculum. Uh, he was one of the greatest Musser thinkers of all time. And uh, his book is an essential aspect of the Musser corpus. The founder of the Slabatka Yeshiva, a Musser master in his own right, he said about his student, Rabbi Abraham Grzynski, that he fixed all his character, he fixed all his midos without anyone noticing it. He didn't do it with a lot of pomp and a lot of publicity. He fixed it quietly and he emerged perfect. And the stories of his conduct during the Holocaust are the stuff of legend. For example, the founder of the Muslim movement, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he famously said that your heart is your Rishus Hayachid. Your heart is your personal domain. Your face, however, that's Rishus Harabim. That's public domain. The, the lesson being is that suppose you're in a bad mood. You're in a rusty mood. Your face is public domain. You cannot, no one else needs to suffer because you're in a bad mood. So Rabbi Abraham Drzezinski, he spent two years trying to inculcate within himself the characteristic of heavy mekabel eskol ha'adam besever panim yafot. Greet everyone you encounter with a pleasant and warm visage. And the stories that I've read about his conduct during the Holocaust, he was in the Covenant Ghetto uh, for four years. And the testimonies that I've read about people who met him, who met this great titan of Musser during the most desperate conditions that a person could possibly be put through, was that despite all that was going around, despite losing multiple family members during the inferno that swallowed European Jewry, his face and his countenance and the way he greeted people was always pleasant and warm. That's one example. But even in the Holocaust, in the ghetto, he maintained a yeshiva. And he would have students come over. And he would give them Musser lectures. They would, they would be dodging Nazis to go hear Musser lectures. Unbelievable. And I think another hallmark of, of Musser is the fact that a Musser master trains himself, him or herself, to take whatever they encounter as a lesson from God. And when faced with the horrors of the Holocaust, 
this great Muslim master in the ghetto, using the Talmud as his guide, he pinpointed 12 areas of Jewish life that he felt that the nation was lacking and that was the underpinning, underlying spiritual cause for the Holocaust. Think about this. Someone who is in the depths of despair trying to figure out what did we do wrong? The the, the age-old question, why did God bring the Holocaust? He asked it in the ghetto. And I think for us, we can't try to draw conclusions as to why the Almighty allowed such a terrible tragedy, the worst genocide that humanity has ever seen, to befall our people. I think it would be insensitive and probably improper for us to speculate as to why that was allowed to happen. But someone like that, a giant of Torah, a master of Musr in the ghetto, someone like that maybe could draw that conclusion. But I think it also shows a certain strength of character and uh, ethical calculus of such a person to make such a practice of trying to figure out why. Why is this happening to the Jewish nation? Now, tragically, he was burned alive in 1944, on the 22nd day of Tammuz. The Nazis herded them all into a hospital, and they burnt the whole thing to the ground. His brother-in-law, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, he said that when Rabbi Avram Grzynski was killed, the Musser movement died with him. He was the last giant of Musser. Now, this story, his story, is uh, deeply personal to me. Because Rabbi Avram Grudzinski was is my great grandfather, and my grandmother, she should live and be well. She's ninety six now, and she's living in Jerusalem. She is his daughter. She grew up in Slabat, and she went through these horrific, traumatic, painful experiences in the ghetto. And she wrote a book about it. So there's a story to tell on that angle, and initially. When the idea was proposed to try to give a Holocaust and Musser talk, initially I was thinking to talk about that, but for several reasons I've opted to go a different route. Uh, first of all, I'm very, um, I'm very uncomfortable to talk about martyrdom of great people during the Holocaust. I feel like it's maybe it's a little bit too sensitive. Yeah, I, I feel like who am I to offer perspectives? Uh, of that side of the story. It feels it feels wrong, and it feels too delicate for me to try to tread upon it. And also, I think it's a very sad and painful story. Uh, so I, I've chosen to tell a different story. One that's inspiring, one that's enlightening, but also to teach us val- valuable lessons of giants of Musser and their conduct during the Holocaust. You know, I think we're here in Kesher, Israel, in the shul in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where the great Rabbi Eliezer Silver was the rabbi for 18 years from 1907 to 1925. And he was so instrumental in the efforts of rescue and salvation, trying to save as many Jews as as possible during the Holocaust. Uh, We all know that he was the founder of the Vat Hatzalah, of the Rescue Committee in America, designated to try to save as many Jews as, as possible. He raised millions of dollars from what I read when I researched this, that the equivalent today, he raised in 2017 dollars, he raised $85 million 
to try to save as many people as possible. He also organized marches and protests and, and, and tried to reach out and lobby the government. Uh, he finagled all kinds of visa and immigration loopholes to allow as many people as possible to bring them here to safety as possible, as many as he could. And of course, after the war, he famously went with the American soldiers and he toured Christian orphanages and monasteries to try to rescue as many Jewish children that were taken there when they were very young to try to bring them back to their people. And I think it's appropriate to tell a different story, to speak about the people who had the fortitude and the strength of character and the resolve to rise to the occasion in a time where there was so much that was needed by our people. There was so much pain and so much opportunity to save and to reach out and to help as many people as possible. And I want to talk about the people and the efforts at great personal investment and great personal effort and even sometimes great personal loss, the people that were committed to do everything they can to try to help and save their endangered brethren. And I want to center my talk uh, around the efforts of my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, a Muslim master in his own right, and the son-in-law of the aforementioned Rabbi Avram Grzynski. I want to tell his story or primarily his story of what he did to try to save people. But also, I want to pepper the talk with some teachings and lessons of the Musa principles that I believe guided his efforts and also could be very informative and educational and inspiring for us to try to also strive to achieve great things. I want to give a little backstory of my grandfather and how he ended up in the situation that allowed him to play such a pivotal role in saving many Jews during the Holocaust. You know, when he was born in Berlin in 1914, no one would have imagined, no one would have forecasted that he would end up being one of the great premier Musser personalities of the 20th century. He was born to a family that was typical of the early 20th century German Jewry. You know, the 19th century was a very uh, chaotic one for the Jewish people at large, but for the German Jews, even beginning in the 18th century, there was a dramatic trend away from tradition, away from observance, away from Torah. And the people of the the, 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 the Zeitgeist of the time was people embracing their, their national homeland and becoming Germans first or Frenchmen first and Jews second. And they were prioritizing their role as a citizen of their new homeland and deprioritizing their role as an eternal Jew. And that was prevalent all across Germany. And my grandfather was born to such a family. Uh, they were fierce German Patriots. They participated in Jewish activities, but that wasn't the highest priority. And his father was a very accomplished academic. He was a professor. He was an author. He was a historian. He wrote a whole bunch of books. He spoke 12 languages. He taught English and, and French, so he had a thing for languages. But he, I went into Wikipedia and tried to read his German Wikipedia page. All these biographies on these German heroes, just a partial listing here. 
Berthold Orbach was a great German poet. The Empress Augusta, all these people have really long Wikipedia pages in German with impossibly long words. Uh, Moses Montefiore, Ludwig August Frankel. Uh, he was a really interesting and accomplished individual, but also a very strong-willed person. And he had an ideology. And he wanted to impart that into his only son, Shlomo, who was known then by his German name, Wilhelm. It's interesting. Like He grew up in a family that was not exactly – certainly his father was not someone who was all into this idea of embracing Torah and becoming a Torah giant. That was his own initiative, maybe with the help of his mother. My grandfather, the Shlomo, he showed a very deep, avid interest in Torah and learning from a very young age. He told his father, I want to be a rabbi and I want to make 10,000 bali tshuva. So he told his father. And there was like, they were butting heads the whole time because he was a young, precocious, very capable young man who has these grandiose dreams of becoming a great Torah scholar where his father wants him to come, become a professor, become an academic, to follow his, his line. Regardless, he, my grandfather, when he was very young, he managed to, he was transferred to the more traditional school and he began studying with this great Rabbi Chaim Kohen. And he was given a, a, a robust Jewish, traditional Jewish education that kind of helped accelerate his, his education and his Jewish education. Regardless, he went to high school in the rabbinical school in Frankfurt. And after high school, he went to Switzerland. And there was a yeshiva in Mantra in Switzerland where he went to yeshiva. And I want to kind of put a little pin on that to tell us another, another uh, related story. So he's in this yeshiva in Switzerland, and he writes later on in, in a different book that he wrote that he found himself in the most beautiful place in the world. And he thought, coming to the yeshiva, that here he's able to connect to God, to connect to the Creator, because it's such a beautiful place. And of course, in such a beautiful, beautiful place, it's the most conducive to connect you to God. And then he writes that actually, I made a mistake. And what I thought that being around such a beautiful, you see the, the, the trees and the mountains and the snow, is beautiful. What I actually discovered was that being surrounded by such natural beauty actually connected me more with the world and less to God. Which is interesting to show a certain characteristic of self-critique of to, to notice missteps in your spiritual journey, which is an interesting ideal that I think is found by all Musur masters. Regardless, in the winter of 1934, he met two people that changed his life. And I would say, I'm only around here talking to you today because of these people. The first was someone by the name of Rabbi David Yaakov Cohen. He was a veteran of the great Lithuanian yeshivas, and it seems like he didn't take the ordinary career path, so he ended up in this yeshiva in Switzerland, and they became good friends. That's the first person. The second person was a Rabbi David Bodnik, who was also a veteran of the Lithuanian Musar yeshivas, 
And he came as a guest lecturer to Switzerland to the yeshiva. And he gets up there and he gives a fiery musr schmooze, a fiery musr talk. And my grandfather is blown away. He's never heard anything like this in his life. So he runs over to his friend, Rabbi Cohn, and he tells him, let's review it. I, I got to hear this again. And he gave two such speeches, and he was totally entranced by these talks. So Rabbi Cohn tells him, you like these talks? You have any idea what it's like to go to the mirror and hear Rabbi Yerucham give a speech? It puts this to shame. It's the most pleasurable thing in the world. You have to go to Poland, and you have to join the mirror. My grandfather is very dubious of this suggestion. For him, a scion of German intelligentsia, to go to Poland, to the backwater place where there's no running water, there's no electricity, it's like telling someone here to go move to Chad or to some place, some third world country. And of course, his dad, his domineering dad, is no way going to sign off on this. This guy says, you got to do it. You got to try. You got to try. You got to try. I don't care. Write a letter to your father. See what happens. What could you lose? Okay. So he writes a letter to his father, who was then on holiday, vacationing in Rome. And his father writes back to him, go ahead. Make sure you get a rabbinic certificate, but go to Poland. He's obviously shocked. This is so out of character. But he patches bags, leaves Switzerland, and goes to Poland and joins the mirror. Later on, he spoke to his mother. His mother told him that before they went on vacation to Rome, his father, a little superstitious, so he went to visit his, his psychic. And he goes to this person who's reading his palms or doing some sort of other shtick. And the person tells him, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to receive a letter from your son, who's in Switzerland. And he's going to give you a very strange request. Grant him the request. It's for his benefit. So he's in Rome, and they're vacationing, and he gets a letter from his son. I want to go to po- Poland? Yeshiva in Poland? And he shows his wife, look, this is what the, this is what that person with the sixth sense, this is what the psychic had said. And he listened, and he sent him to yeshivas. And I remember my, my grandfather, he writes, it's so interesting that the Almighty would use this divine providence of having some wacko, some psychic, tell his father that this is how he ended up in the mirror. But regardless, he ended up in the mirror in 1934, and his life was changed forever. Because in the mirror, he was able to study under the tutelage of the one of the greatest giants of Musa of all time, Rabbi Yerucham Lovavitz. And I want to just pause for a second and talk a little bit about Musa in general. Uh, what is Musa and what is the ideal that they're trying to impart? So I want to kind of crystallize it in one sentence. Musa is the tool to integrate Torah into man. Musa is not some sort of other study. There's Torah and there's Musr. No. Musr is a, is a, it's a section of Torah of practical application of Torah principles. It's possible for someone to study lots of Torah 
and B, someone who's a great Torah scholar, but it doesn't actually penetrate and change them fundamentally. They're the same person. Musr is the tools and the methodology and the means to integrate the Torah so that it actually affects the person. The founder of the Muslim movement, he wrote in a letter the following uh, astonishing quote, transforming a person from bad character to good character without Musr is like attempting to see without an eye or to hear without an ear. What it means is, is that it's the lifeblood of change. The Torah, of course, is there to guide us, to be the light that's going to inspire us to become great people. That's the value proposition of the Torah. Musr is actually harnessing the power of Torah and integrating it into oneself. And I think there's a good example to demonstrate this point. In the beginning of Parsha's Shlach, in the middle of the Book of Numbers, it tells the story of how the spies, 12 spies designated by Moshe, go scout out the land. And they go and they travel 40 days up and down all around the land, and they come back to Moshe and come back to the Jewish people and give a very negative report about what they found. And we're told that they spoke Lashon Hara, they spoke evil talk about Israel, about the land of Israel. Immediately preceding that episode is the story of Miriam speaking evil about Moshe. And the story goes briefly. In the end of Parshas Bahaloscha, Moshe nominates a bunch of prophets. Two of them, Eldad and Medad, stay in the camp and they start prophesizing. And Zipporah, who is Moshe's wife, says to him, Oyve, says, announces to her sister Miriam, I feel bad for their wives. Because ever since Moshe prophesied at Sinai, he has divorced himself from me. And Miriam just discovered this is a new thing that she just discovers. Wait a minute. Why is Moshe separating himself from his wife? After all, we're also prophets. And we're not separating ourselves from our wife, from our spouses. And that, as a result of that, she speaks negatively about Moshe, and she gets saras, she gets leprosy, and Moshe prays and the Almighty heals her. Immediately after that story, the story of the spies. Says Rashi, Why is there a juxtaposition between the episode of Miriam and the episode of the Miragam of the spies? Because she was stricken on matters of speech. Which she spoke on her brother. And these wicked people, These wicked people, they saw, they, everyone saw what happened to Miriam, and they didn't take Musr. I think here we get a very succinct definition as to what Musr is. Again, it's not a distinct type of learning or a distinct subject matter. It's rather a format of how someone studies. You see something, you take a lesson to heart. Whether that be Torah, how is it relevant to me? Rabbi Yisrael Salanta would always, the founder of the Muslim movement, would always say, every time you study Talmud or Torah, you always have to ask the question, how can I make it real? How can I make it relevant? How could I actually adopt this principle into my life? You see something happen to someone else? 
you see someone who made a blunder and spoke Lashon Hara and was punished as a result, you have to right away apply that to yourself. Musr is a self-application. It's that last mile of connecting who you really are to what you encounter, both in the Torah and what you see in the world. These people saw what happened to Miriam. She spoke negatively about her brother and she was punished. And they saw, but it wasn't didn't impact them. They didn't take Musr. They didn't actually integrate and apply what they learned, what they saw, what they encountered into their lives. There's another example of a favorite of the, of the Musr masters is the Talmud at the beginning of the book of Sota. The Talmud asks why both in the Torah and in the Talmud is the, is the section of the Nazir juxtaposed to the section of the Sota. The, the Sota is the, is, the, is the suspected adulterous woman. And the Nazir is someone who abstains from wine for a minimum of 30 days. Why both in the Torah and the Talmud are these two sections seemingly have nothing to do with each other? Why are they put next to each other? Says the Talmud. Whoever sees a Sota, whoever sees an episode of a Sota, who sees people who are unfaithful, people who are committing adultery or potentially doing so, you have, if you see that, you have to make a vow of Nazirus. Why? Because wine brings to frivolity, and frivolity could lead to someone being unfaithful. And therefore, you see someone else sinning. And you have to say, how does it relate to me? How do I ensure that I don't make the same mistake? Typically, we're very quick to find the justification of our behavior and find the faults of another's behavior. And here, what the Musser masters draw from this Talmud is even when someone else indeed did make a mistake, the way to benefit from this encounter is to say, what can I learn from it? How do I apply it to myself? So in a nutshell, the idea of Musser is applying the Torah to yourself to change who you are and to change your character and become great. And of course, if you're going to do that with consistency, if you follow a rigorous, intensive Musser protocol, what's the result? The result is someone who the Torah has impacted. The spiritual realm is alive within them. They have become spiritually attuned and spiritually vital, and alive, and aware. It's real, because the Torah is actually operating, not as some sort of study that is external, abstract, it's another form of learning, rather it's something that actually beats in their heart from within. In Mir, what they did was, in this yeshiva that my grandfather went to when he was 20, they took people, and they used Torah and Musr to mold them into great Torah scholars and great Musr personalities. That's what they did. Under the leadership of Ebiruchum, this actually happened. So I'll give you one example of what they used to do or, or how the Musr methodology, just kind of the way the Musr person thinks. My grandfather says, he, got, he gets to the mirror and there's two lectures. There's a lecture from the Rosh Hashiva on the Talmud and there's a lecture from the Mashkiach on the Musr. There's the more ethical lecture and there's more the Talmudic analysis lecture. And my grandfather felt that he couldn't adequately 
write down both of them. You had to choose one. So which one do you choose? So what does the Muslim master do? He says, whichever one I want to do more, I'll do the other one. So he said he wanted to write the Muslim one more, so he wrote the other one. Just a little example of, 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 of kind of these little tweaks that they would put in their lives to advance themselves and to develop their, their willpower. Regardless, he's in the mirror for four years. Rabbi Rucham dies in 1936. He follows, uh, he's followed by the great Rabbi Chatzkel Levenstein, another great Muslim master. And I want to pick up his story in 1938. In 1938, he went to visit his mother in Germany. And he gets back to Poland, and he finds out that as a German national, his, uh, his visa has been revoked. He can't come into Poland. Thanks to Hitler's aggression, all German nationals lost their visas. Now, I would surmise, certainly in retrospect, that one of the worst decisions you could ever make is going back to Germany in 1938. So what to do? So he tried all kinds of efforts to try to manage to get a visa. And he, they managed to give him a three-month visa to Poland. Incidentally, he says that by the time he arrived in Poland, it was Hanukkah time. And he says, in the mirror on Hanukkah time, you still felt the influence of the high holidays. You know, by us, the high holidays come and everyone's all excited. Everyone's all spiritually motivated. And then when you sing Lashana Habab Yerushalayim after Yom Kippur, thank God. We won't have to do that. Actually, as a side note, someone, I literally heard them say this year, this is my happiest time of year because I don't have to face this misery for another whole year. Put that aside. There is a certain spiritual ascension that we have in Yom Kippur. And then, of course, we hope that we could take that with us throughout the year. My grandfather says he got to the mirror in Hanukkah time, he still felt it. But he only has three months. He's got to find out what to do after three months. And all efforts that he invested and others invested to try to get a permanent visa to Poland were denied. He tried to go to Lithuania. Lithuania, of course, is uh, a bastion of many yeshivos. And he tried really hard everything he could do to go to Tells, which is another great yeshiva in Lithuania. Nothing worked. And it's fortuitous for him, and I would say by extension for me, because in 1941, in June, right after Operation Barbarossa, the entire yeshiva of Tells was slaughtered. And if my grandfather was there, it's likely that he would suffer the same fate. So what to do? Where are you going to go? Nobody wants you. Can't go to Palestine. You can't go to the United States. Europe is a tinderbox that's waiting to explode. Where are you going to go? Salvation came from maybe the most unlikely of places, and that is Sweden. For the duration of the war, my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, lived in one of the only countries in Europe to remain neutral and the only one in its region that uh, did not get embroiled in the conflict of World War II. How he ended up there is a story on its own right. In 1937, a year before he had to leave, him, you know, he was already 23 years old, he wanted to spread his wings, and he, along with his friend of his, they were considering to open up a yeshiva in Copenhagen. 
in Denmark. Now, very few people were aware of his plan to open up yeshiva in, in Denmark. One of them being the chief rabbi of Copenhagen, uh, Rabbi Jacobson, and another being a Rabbi Zev Grothold, who was one of his colleagues in the mirror. By divine providence, these two people, two of the only people on the planet who knew of my grandfather's plans to open yeshiva in Copenhagen, they met together in Stockholm, in Sweden, for Shabbos. And they were both guests by the Lehman family, one of the only Torah-observant families in Sweden. And the Mr. Lehman said to these two people who had come from various places in Europe, my son Eric, he's, he's growing up, and I, there's no one here to teach him Torah. You know someone who could be a tutor or a teacher that we could bring over to Sweden? So both of them thought of my grandfather, Walby. This is around 1938. The Copenhagen plan is probably not going to work out. Both of them said, you know what? Walby is a good, he's a good candidate. So they write him a letter. We want to invite you for a teaching position and a tutoring position in Stockholm, Sweden, to teach small children. And my grandfather gets this offer, and he is not really interested. No offense, but that, that's not where he felt that he could have the maximum impact. But when there was no other options, he had literally no place to go. He was kicked out of Poland. Germany was not an option. There was nowhere else to go. In 1938, he moved to Stockholm, and he remained there until 1946. And I think the stories that we find about his exploits and his activities during this period are legendary and remarkable and inspiring. And also, I think, indicative of what Musser does to a person. What does someone look like when Torah has penetrated them from within? How do they operate? And what can we learn from that? So first of all, Stockholm in Sweden was a land of spiritual desolation. The community there lacked the basic infrastructure of a Jewish living. Sometimes there was a minion. Sometimes there there wasn't a minion. Uh, But moreover, it was a place, it was a very secular place. Even rabbis and yeshiva students who went there very quickly would abandon tradition. That was just, that was the trend that happened there. And the story goes that my grandfather arrives to Stockholm. And before he even finalizes a place where he's going to stay, a lodging, he looks for a shul. And he finds a small shul that there's, it's not occupied. And that became his base for the rest of his stay there. And he puts a sign on the door. He hangs up a shingle. Base HaMusser. The house of Musser. And then he says, okay, now we can look, try to find a place to stay as well. He wrote a book called Mitzvos Hashkulos. This was the last book that he published in his life. He was 88 years old when it was published. He actually had intended to publish it posthumously. But he was convinced to publish it while he was alive. And the, the subject matter of the book is actually very fascinating. Scattered throughout the Talmud, there's seven times that the Talmud says about a given mitzvah that this mitzvah is equal to all mitzvahs combined. The seven mitzvahs regarding which that label is given, that this mitzvah is equal to all mitzvahs combined. So obviously there's some sort of pattern here. And the book is basically two theses of a, of a way to understand what these seven mitzvahs represent and what they teach us about Torah in general. But on page 122, he writes the following. 
This, I'm going to translate it. It's written in Hebrew, but I'll just give you the direct translation. This I can testify myself. I lived for eight years in the distant country of Sweden in a community that had barely a minion of Shabbos observant people. Almost all rabbis and uh, people who held rabbinic posts who worked there got corrupted. If I succeeded to preserve my standing as a ben Torah, as a, as a student of Torah in those years, when I was alone, it was only because I studied Musser consistently. If not for that, who knows what would have happened to me. Only through the study of Musser did I remain, with the thanks of the Almighty, a yachid ba'olami, a, a, a loner in my world, as I was taught by my great teachers. And he concludes, I am writing these words because I don't see within it any boasting. It's as if a person who says that he stayed healthy in the years of famine because he ate bread. Again, well, what does Musser do? It makes someone spiritually alive. He also would add that the very la- one of the last lectures that he heard from his teacher, Rabbi Rucham, before he passed, was he gave, he gave an illustration. He said, someone has to be so firm in their faith that even if they're on a distant country and in a place where Torah is ridiculed and they're there for years, you have to maintain your steadfast commitment to faith. And, of course, that would be literally his situation for eight years in Sweden. But not only did he preserve his own personal stature, he was also uniquely positioned to help and assist others around him. So, first of all, there's I go into many details about all the various efforts that he did to try to help the community in Sweden. Uh, for example, uh, he learned how to speak and how to write fluently in Swedish. And he wrote a book in Swedish during his times, which is an astonishing thing in its own right. To write any book is difficult. To write a book in a foreign language is, is something uh, really noteworthy. Uh, but circumstances are going to be such that his efforts are really going to be needed very soon back on the mainland in Europe. So back in Mir, there's 300 students there. And the noose is tightening. In August of 1939, the infamous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between the Russians and the Germans was signed. And basically what they decided, we're going to take Poland, divvy it up in half. The eastern half is going to go to the Russians. The western half is going to be swallowed up by the Nazis. And moreover, all those other little countries are going to be parceled up into spheres of Nazi influence and spheres of Soviet influence. Of course, on September 1st, the Germans faced very feeble resistance and they marched through western Poland. The Soviets come in from the east. On September 17th, the town of Mir, which was on the eastern side of Poland, closer to Lithuania, it was captured by the Soviets. And by October, Poland has functionally ceased to exist. And the yeshiva students are in the mirror, and they're trapped. Now, certainly you'd rather be, if you had to choose which side of this divide you'd want to be on, you probably would opt to be with the Soviets than being with the, with the Germans. Uh, but they're both bad options. Certainly you want to run a yeshiva, the Soviets are very hostile to such prepositions. So what to do? 
So in early October of 1939, there was a American student who had a radio, a uh, contraband radio in his room, and he would listen to the BBC reports from England. And he heard something really noteworthy in the radio. He heard that the town of Vilna is going to be apportioned to Lithuania, and Lithuania is going to remain independent. Even though it's under the Soviet sphere of influence, it's going to be granted, it's been given to the city, uh, to, to the country of Lithuania. And, like, this was very important news, because Lithuania, uh, Lithuania is right next to Poland. Uh, Vilna is about 200 kilometers from Mir, and maybe they could find a oasis in the middle of war-torn Europe. Maybe they could go to Vilna. Now, Vilna, it's important to give us its backstory. The countries of Lithuania and Poland were both, the modern countries of Lithuania and Poland were only formed after World War One, after the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations. And they decided to give Vilna to the Lithuanians. But a year later, the Poles came in and they conquered Vilna. Vilna was the capital of Lithuania, but it was conquered by the Poles. And that caused Lithuania and Poland to cut off all diplomatic ties. So in Vilna, there's no embassy, there's no Polish embassies in Vilna. There's no Polish embassies anywhere in Lithuania. So now Vilna's been given back to Lithuania, but if you're a Polish citizen, you don't you cannot really access any of the consulate or embassy needs of the citizen. Regardless, they all lacked passports. And this is the beginning of the saga. They're in Poland. Poland is now a country that is defunct. They're living under the Soviet rule. They want to get to Vilna in Lithuania, but they don't have Polish passports because Poland has ceased to exist. Now, they managed to get passports in an interesting little workaround. Uh, the Polish government in exile set up shop in Britain. And they petitioned and they managed to get for the entire yeshiva in the mir Polish passports, which were accepted by the Lithuanian authorities. So in the end of 1939, all the yeshiva students and many others, there were about 2,500 yeshiva students from all over the region, what's today Belarus or Poland, they got their Polish passports. They traveled to Vilna. In Vilna, by the way, the Godel Adar was Rabbi Chaim Ozer Grzynski. And he, he actually passed away in 1939. But all the yeshivos from all over the region coalesced in Vilna. And the community swelled. And the authorities actually had to move various yeshivos to various different hamlets in the surrounding suburbs. The yeshiva was, was safe. And everyone's alive. And they now have Polish passports. But the war is raging all around them. And for the meantime, Vilnius or Vilna is neutral. It's in Lithuania, but that's going to change very swiftly. Several months later, in their boundless magnanimity, the Soviets decided to add Lithuania to be the 16th state in the United Soviet Socialist Republic. And as a result, everyone knew very clearly 
that it's time to try to find a longer-term solution. And this will also cause another problem because if Lithuania is now just a state amongst the USSR, all foreign countries are going to move their embassies out of Vilna to Moscow. So your options of accessing foreign countries are going to be severely limited. And everyone's trying to scramble to find a way to get out of this place. Now, to leave, you need, number one, a passport. Number two, you need a destination visa. You need a visa of your ultimate destination. Like we said, you can't go to America. They don't want you. The Brits in Palestine, the white paper, that made that not an option. But you need a destination visa where you're going. And you also need a transit visa. For every country you're going to meet, go along the way, you're going to need to have a transit visa. Suppose you got a, a destination visa to Australia. You need to have every country you're going to visit along the way, you need to have a transit visa for those countries. So you might have for Korea or for uh, all the other countries to get there, uh, fine. So there was a Dutch student in the yeshiva who went to the Dutch ambassador who was still there. As the, It took a few months, and nowadays it takes four years to build an embassy, to move an embassy, right? In those days, they picked up the embassies and moved. So there were still a few embassies left in Vilna before they moved to Moscow. So the Dutch student, he went to the Dutch ambassador, who was a fellow by the name of Jan Zwartendijk. And he was, incidentally, he wasn't a diplomat. He was someone who was an executive for the Philips Corporation. And the previous Dutch ambassador to Lithuania was a Nazi sympathizer. And therefore, they fired him and they brought this guy. He was, he was, he was a businessman, but he must have had a heart of gold and had no care for protocol. So he, they put him in place. He's the ambassador. And he's also moving to Moscow, but he was there for a little, a little period. And this Dutch student comes to him and says, can you give me a visa to some Dutch colony? And they came up with the island of Curacao. Curacao is in the West Indies. It's in, it's essentially, it's an island north of Venezuela. Now, he also did some chicanery because the visa actually said no visa required. And then on the bottom, it said, entry conditional upon governor's approval. So what he did is he gave the visa, and then he ripped off the bottom part, and it said, no visa required, the bearer of this, the bearer of this document can walk into Curacao. So now they had a, this, this individual had a destination visa. Now the next morning, this Mr. Zwartendick, he woke up, and there was a hundred people outside his door. And he started delivering these visas at dizzying speed. And people are absolutely desperate. They're trying to save their skin. And there's even a story that I read of some guy who was so desperate for a visa, he climbed the pipes on the side of the building and jumped into the guy's office because the guy had locked his door. And he's like, please save my life. Give me a visa. And he wrote him a visa as well. But this only solves the problem. They have a passport now and you have a destination visa. The problem is you still need transit visas. So this Dutch student, he was walking around and he sees someone who was Oriental. And he says, who are you? It turns out this guy is the Japanese consul, Sugihara. And he says, would you give me a transit visa through Japan? And he says to him, yes. So he gets now, now he has the whole, he has the Polish passport. 
He's got the Curacao destination visa. He's got the Japanese transit visa. Once you had all those three, you go to the Soviets and they'll give you a transit visa, no problem. And the reason why is because they wanted the passageways to be crowded with people, refugees, so they could sneak all their spies in it. They didn't care. If you had all the other parts, they'd give you a, a, a visa. So this is what happened. And there was thousands and thousands in the entire yeshiva, thousands of Jews. They all got this whole little workaround. The Polish passport, the Curacao destination visa, Soviet and Japanese transit visas. They got onto the Trans-Siberian Railroad in Moscow. They traveled 6,000 miles, 10,000 kilometers to Vladivostok. They got off at the edge of Vladivostok, crossed the Sea of Japan in uh, these roofless boats meant for transporting cattle with no bathrooms for 36 hours facing very rocky seas. In fact, they described that they were facing these waves of 20 to 30 feet high, but they got there and they landed in Kobe, Japan. And they landed in, in sorry, not in Kobe, Japan. They landed in the port of Tsuruga and they traveled to Kobe. Incidentally, uh, these individuals, the Dutch and the Japanese ambassadors, they really are heroes. Uh, in 1986, they were honored by Yad Vashem. They estimated that they saved 6,000 people. And it, it's estimated that there's 40,000, at the time at least, that there's 40,000 Jewish descendants that were saved by these people. I, you know, I always, whenever I tell the story, I say, any, every time I have a child, every time my wife and I have a child, that number goes up. Because my wife's grandfather was actually a student in the Mir who was from the town of Baranovich, a town today in Belarus, where 98% of the Jews who were there were killed. He happened to be a student in the yeshiva in the Mir. He actually arrived in 1938, and he spent the war years in, first in Japan and then in Shanghai. And then afterwards, in 1947, he moved to America, and that's my wife's grandfather. So, like, I'm a personal beneficiary of these tremendous heroes of the Gentiles. Now, I want to go back to Sweden, to my grandfather. Because there's many people, primarily the people who were not part of the, who never had the Polish passports, who couldn't implement this whole workaround. There were many Shiva students stuck in Vilna. And they never had the passports. They couldn't get those stamps. And by the time things worked out, those people were gone. So what about those people? So there was an American yeshiva student uh, from Kamenetz. He petitioned the Polish embassy in Switzerland to give passports. And after everyone else had left, the remainder, they got boxes with hundreds and even thousands of passports from the Polish embassy in exile in Switzerland. But remember, like that's only the beginning of the story. You still need to have your transit visas and your destination visas. And by that time, this ambassador Zwartendig and the consul Sudihara had left. And the students remembered that there's this one guy in, in, in Stockholm. He is a, he's a a graduate of the Mir, maybe he could help us. And he gets a letter. The first letter he gets is from Rebbe Hanan Wasserman, who's a great Rosh Hashiva. And he says to him, could you, I heard that it's possible to get visas to Haiti. Could you help us with that? 
So my grandfather managed to finagle some visa to Haiti. He sent one to Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, but because Rabbi Wasserman's son had his leg broken, they decided to just stay. And sadly, in 1941, uh, he was executed uh, by the barbaric Germans. But the letters kept on coming. All these people who weren't able to use the previous methods started sending letters to my grandfather. And he even got a telegram from one of the Rosh Hashivas in Vilna that said to him very clearly, if you need to work on Shabbos, you must do your say. There's people's lives are in danger. And that really mobilized him to do something about it. So he reached out to all the people he could and he actually found the Dutch ambassador in Sweden. And he managed to get a thousand Curacao visas for all the people that were left in Vilna. And they, again, opened their mail, and they, too, managed to get the same workaround, and they also ended up in Japan and in Shanghai. I have a, uh, an article here uh, written by one of the people who received these, these um, visas. He writes in here, Then suddenly, passports arrived from the Polish embassy in Bern, Switzerland, mailed to us by an American communist student with the help of the Maratzala. But we were still without visas, and the remaining days of registration were few. We then received letters from Stockholm, Sweden, granting us Curacao visas. We later learned that they were sent by a rabbinic student, a refugee from Germany, who on the verge of starvation spent his food money on the Curacao visas issued by the Dutch embassy in Stockholm. He is well known today as Rabbi Shlomo Wolby of Jerusalem, one of the generation's greatest living Jewish thinkers. He was given a stipend for his tutoring work. Problem is that every visa cost him, I think, about a dollar, which was a lot of money at the time. And the story goes is that he didn't have any food and he was working 22 hours a day and he would only pop in a, a little tablet of chocolate every few hours to avoid collapsing. And he actually developed gastronomic problems because of it. But regardless, he managed to do this and to help save hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of people, which is, uh, you know, and he was very proud. He would never tell us about this thing. We had to find it out from all these other sources because he would not want to aggrandize his accomplishments. Now, incidentally, to finish that story, those people, they had the Polish passports and the Curacao visas, but Sugihara is gone. So they sent those passports with the visas to Moscow, and they were refused because the Japanese consul there consulted his Dutch counterpart and says, no, 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 they, you can't. No, they, you need to have the governor's approval. So they got back their passports without the Japanese transit visa. So they sent it to Irkutsk, to the deepest bowels of the Soviet empire, to a place called Chida. And there was a Japanese consul there. And they figured there's no Dutch man within a thousand miles. That's the place to send it. They sent it there, they get back the transit visas, and they too were able to follow this path of salvation back uh, to safety in the Far East. Now, war, of course, broke out between the Jap- Japan and the United States in the end of 1941. So the yeshiva in Japan and Japanese-occupied Shanghai, and how were they subsisting? They had fundraisers, probably Silver amongst them, in America, 
They were raising millions of dollars for all kinds of relief efforts. And they were sending them to Japan. Problem is, is that war, there's no longer any postal service between the United States and Japan. So they would send it to my grandfather in Sweden. He'd pull off all the American flags and all the American packaging. He'd repackage it and ship it to Japan. And he was like a vital link between the Jews, there was 25,000 of them, in Shanghai and the Jews in the United States at their beneficiary. He wants to send letters, books. It's interesting. There's um, the Mary Yeshiva actually published. Yeshiva, what does Yeshiva do? They study Torah, Talmud on a very high level. So they published a, a collection, a compilation of great Torah insights in Shanghai, in, in China. And there's one entry from someone who's not there. My grandfather from Sweden submitted an essay that's actually included in that compilation. I would imagine what he did is, in the suitcase full of money, he slipped in the letter and sealed it. That's what I'm guessing. But it's interesting. It says, Talmid, Shlomo Volbe, Talmid Mir, student of Mir, Shvedia, from Sweden. Just a, a little bow in that story. In 1983, my grandfather was invited to come to the Mir Yeshiva, which was then reestablished in Jerusalem, and he would give by monthly lectures, Musr lectures. And he was the only person who was not part of the official faculty that was invited that was that was speaking there. And he was speaking there on a regular rotation until he's passing in 2005. It's maybe not a far stretch to suggest that because he played such an important role in helping the Shiva sustain and manage throughout this turbulent time, they wanted to show him gratitude. Now it's also interesting the yeshiva actually reached out to him and they said to him, is it possible, we're very, you know, remember, America's at war with Japan and there's incessant bombings of Japanese cities and they were looking for ways to get out. So they said to him, is it possible, do you think you could help us, the whole yeshiva, 500 souls to get out of Sweden? So he managed, along with other helpers in Sweden, to gain 500 visas from Gustav VI of Sweden, who became actually became the king of Sweden, and actually had visas for all the yeshiva students and their families in Japan. The problem is the Soviets were not willing to allow usage of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. The idea was to take them all back to Sweden. But once war broke out, they were no longer allowing civilian transport. There's another story I want to say about my grandfather and his role in saving Jews throughout the Holocaust. I want to give a little introduction. Ramchal tells us, uh, Lutzato, the great codifier of Jewish philosophy, he tells us that in the beginning of Messiah Sisharim, of Path of the Just, that the objective of life, the, why are we here, is to get eternal reward in Olam Abba. That's, his, that's the short version of what he writes. Now, the Talmud tells us, is that, well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you, how do you, Merit entry to Omaba. Well, you got to do mitzvos. You got to be righteous. You got to do a lot of things. You got to live a very righteous life. But there's three episodes in the Talmud that describe an entirely different path to the same destination. It's someone who's able to cut the line. Someone who doesn't invest a whole lifetime of effort to try to achieve Omaba. Someone who gets there in an instant. I'll tell you the stories quickly. The first story goes back to Roman times. It talks about a Caesar who hated Jews. Perhaps a few Caesars could fit that role, but it seems to me that this perhaps was the Emperor Hadrian. 
and he consults his advisors. This is from the Talmud Book of Odazar, page 10b. And he tells his advisors, if someone has a blister in your leg, what should you do? Should you sever it? You'd cut it off and heal yourself. Or should you let it fester and suffer? So everyone says, of course, you should cut it out. And the idea is like, okay, the Jews are a thorn in my side. I'm going to get rid of them. So one advisor opens up and says, his name is Katia Bar Shalom. And he says to him, you can't do that. First of all, he quotes some proof that it won't, it won't work. Everyone tries to kill the Jews. The Jews are, you can't destroy them. Everyone's tried it before. Everyone will keep on trying. It'll never happen. That's number one. Number two, what's it going to say about your legacy? You're going to be the one Roman emperor who killed his own people. You can't kill them. So the emperor says to him, you know what? You're right. But you're a dead man. Because you won up the emperor. And though the rule is you won up the, won up the emperor, you're, you're, you're dead meat. So they start leading him to execution. And it's likely that they did it in some sort of grotesque public fashion. So someone from the bleachers hollers at Tia Bar Shalom and says, you're dying for the Jewish people, but you're not even Jewish yourself. What a sucker. So he grabs a knife, he circumcises himself, and he holds it up high and says, I paid my tax. They execute him, and a booming prophetic voice announces... Katia Bar Shalom is ushered into Olmaba. And when Rabbi Judah the prince hears this, he starts crying. Some people have to invest their whole life to get Olmaba, others get it in one hour. That's the first story. Second story is about an interesting individual. He was his name was Rabbi Eliezer Ben Durdai, and the Talmud says that he was a connoisseur of prostitutes. And he found there was one uh, prostitute in the other end of the world, very expensive, and in a very dramatic way she tells him, you're, you're good for nothing. You'll never repent. And you know you really hit rock bottom when uh, someone like that starts giving you musser. So he's, he's really shaken up by this. And he says, you know what? I'm changing my way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn a new leaf. And he goes out and starts praying. And he tells, prays to the mountains. Mountains save me. Mountains say we can't save you. Son of the moon saved me. Stars, no one could save me. Only I can save myself. He starts crying and he dies. And the Talmud again says, a prophetic voice booms. Rabbi Eliezer ben you're welcome to Omaba. A third story is during the Hadrianic persecutions. After the Bar Kochba rebellion is repulsed, Hadrian goes on an assassina- assassination campaign to kill the rabbis. And he says, whoever teaches Torah publicly, it's going to be executed. Rabbi Hanina ben Shradion, the father-in-law of Rabbi Meir, he's teaching Torah publicly anyhow. And the Romans, in their barbaric cruelty, try to torture him before they kill him. They wrap him in a Torah scroll. They surround him in a fire. They place a cold compress on his heart. And they watch him suffer and squirm in agony. And his students are there and they say to him, what do you see? And famously he says, I see that the Torah scroll is being, the, the scroll, the parchment is being burned, but the letters are flying up to heaven. Even though you could kill the Jew, but you can't kill the Jewish spirit. And his daughter is there, and his daughter says, please, I plead with you, just just die. I can't bear seeing you suffer. And he responds to her, well, if it was just me suffering, that would be a problem. But the Torah is suffering here with me. And I know if God will not stand idle when his Torah is being mistreated, Therefore, once he takes care of the Torah, he'll take care of me. 
Now the Roman executioner sees all this, and he's moved. And he asks Rabbi Hanina, if I expedite your death, and I end your suffering, will you guarantee me a portion of the world to come? He says to him, yes. He pulls off the compress, he adds f- uh, flames to the fire, he jumps himself in, they both die, and again, a third time, a prophetic voice announces, Rabbi Hanina Tradion and the Kaltstan Tanuri, the executioner, are both welcome to Olam Abba. And for a third time, the great Rabbi Judah the Prince hears this, he starts crying, and he says, behold, some people have to work their whole life to get there, others get it in one instant. Now, as a way of explaining this, suppose you have Bill Gates, and he gets a new neighbor. And he says, a new, okay, what do you do? I invested in Bitcoin when it was 10 cents. And he feels bad. Like, I had to sweat how many 20-hour days in Microsoft until I became really rich. And this guy gets it in one hour. That's the reason why Rabbi the Prince was crying. Some people have to work so hard to get to the point where they reach the pinnacle of human accomplishment, and other people just get it in one hour. Another story, Moshe Feinstein, he said, there was a story once that he wrote a a psaq. He wrote a halakhic responsa, and he's the greatest halakhic authority of the 20th century. And there was some whippersnapper that didn't like what Rabbi Moshe said. So he went and publicly berated and belittled Rabbi Moshe's psaq, his, his, his position. A few months later, the Feinsteins can knock on the door. Who is it? It's the same guy who's here, clearly, to apologize. So they welcome him in, and he says to Rabbi Feinstein, listen, I, I wrote a new book. And I want to know if you could give me a letter of approbation. The, the onlookers are apoplectic. They can't believe what they see. The gall, the gumption, the chutzpah, the temerity of this person to come and say. Moshe pulls out a stationery and writes, what a great book. And I looked at it and what a great Torah scholar and gives it to him. Surely he's going to apologize now, right? No, he gets a thank you. What's out the door? People can't believe it. What a perversion of justice. Could you imagine this guy walks in? So someone comes to Moshe and says to him, my high, what's going on? So he tells him, the Talmud tells us, Yesh kone olam achas. It's possible for someone to get their eternal merit and reward omaba in one hour. I thought, perhaps this is my opportunity. This is my chance. This is my once-in-a-lifetime chance to do something so great and to forgo my own honor. Maybe this is the way I'll get my omaba in one hour. But the idea being is that there's sometimes there's opportunities in life where you're able to butt the whole trend of doing things slowly and incrementally and small steps and and eventually getting the promised land. There's sometimes in life where you have an opportunity to do something grand and you have to be ready to seize the moment. Uh, a year ago, Robert Kraft, who's a businessman from Boston who owns the Patriots, he gave the commencement speech in YU. And he tells the story of how he bought the Patriots. The Patriots were perennial losers, and they were owned by the, the family that owned Budweiser, and they wanted to move the Patriots to St. Louis. And he made a bid, $115 million, $115 million and he was, he was willing to pay up to 122 It wasn't worth it, but he was willing to do it. So they came back with a counteroffer, 172 not a shekel less. And he said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And of course, now it's like worth $5 billion. So it looks like he made off pretty well with his money. But he, he tells 
BYU grads. Sometimes there's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and no amount of business school or planning will prepare you for it. And it's there, and you if it won't come back, you got to seize it. And that's where emotional finds this is a spiritual equivalent to that. Sometimes in life, there's spiritual opportunities that are so amazing, so juicy, so you got to grab them and not relinquish them. You got to be prepared to pounce and to seize them. And I think that, you know, the Holocaust and everything that happened in the Holocaust, you see, like some people, they had invested such Herculean efforts to try to save their brethren. And others that, listen, I really feel bad. It pains me so much that people are being. Uh, are being tortured in such horrific ways. But how do you act? I think it's indicative of who you are, the response that you have to such a reality. You encounter the fact that there's people that are dying and you say, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to invest 110% to do something about it. What you're really doing is there's an opportunity to save a life. You save a life, you save the world. You save 10 lives. Who knows what kind of, how much you're able to co- accomplish in one hour. And we see these great people. And I feel fortunate to be able to talk in the, the, this very venue or the very institution where Rabbi Silver, who, who did so much to save so many Jews and really seizing this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The lesson perhaps for us is to be aware, and Ramosha says that everyone has an opportunity in their lives at some point, to be aware of the possibility that there may come a spiritual opportunity that is so such an outlier, so out of the ordinary, and such an opportunity for us to really leapfrog all the hard work that is usually necessary to the degree, like in the Bitcoin example. I remember hearing about Bitcoin when it was 10 cents a coin. Could have been so rich. If you think about that, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Maybe we could, uh, maybe there'll be more. Who knows? But that, that's, that's an example in, in, in this world, but in the spiritual world, that we're told that there's opportunities available for everyone at some point in their lives. So the war is over. And my grandfather is in Stockholm and he reads in the newspaper that there's trains of refugees arriving from the camps. Maybe they're Jewish. So what does he do? He goes, it was far, far away, several hours on the train. He goes to the place where these people are. And he finds an enormous camp with thousands of Jewish women. Turns out that the Swedish government had a little bit of a mismatch in the amount of men versus the amount of women. There was much more men than women. They had a little shit crisis, as we'd say today. And they figured they could do both the humanitarian gesture and a way to solve the problem by importing trainloads full of young Jewish female refugees. There were 20,000 Jewish girls that were allowed into Sweden and only several hundred men. So he gets there, and he finds all these refugee camps. And he goes to the, there's hospitals for the sick, and he tells the story that there was one, it was that year, Rosh Hashanah, 1945, and he decided to forego the minion in Stockholm, and there was a massive tent of, 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 of refugees who were very ill. And he said, all he did the whole Rosh Hashanah, he went with a chauffeur, from room to room, blowing chauffeur for all this for all the Jewish girls. And he did that the entire day. That's all he did the whole day. Davin by himself and blue chauffeur for all the girls. 
And the next day he came back a second time. He says, second, th- second day, many of the girls who were alive on day one had already perished by day two. And he would, he would testify that in his whole life, he never had as meaningful a Rosh Hashanah as the one he spent with the uh, frail and traumatized and sickly patients in Stockholm. But there were also many healthy displaced people. And he arrives in one camp and he's just bewildered by how many people there are there. And he hears a bell, a bell ring. So he asks, what's this bell that, well, what is this bell that, that was ringing? Time for lunch. Time for lunch. Okay, I'll pull out my lunch as well. He made himself a, a sandwich or whatever. So he pulled out his lunch. And he's looking for a place to wash his hands. And he finds a place to wash his hands. And he washes his hands and he makes the bracha and he eats his food. And he looks up and he sees all the girls crying. And these were girls who had gone through four or five years of tremendous trauma and pain and suffering in camps of all sorts. And they see this rabbinic figure with a big beard and a big coat. And he's doing something they haven't seen in so long. He's washing his hands. He's making a bracha. And instantly they're being transported back to a different world and a different lifetime with their families. And they're overwhelmed with, they're overwhelmed with emotion. He starts crying himself. What a sight. The war is over, but these broken people are here before him. What do you do about it? So he gets on the train back to go back home. And he's trying to figure out what, what's the plan here. How vulnerable are these girls? It turns out there was missionaries, Christian missionaries going throughout the camps. And there were actually, uh, there was an episode where 14 girls were baptized. These, they were very vulnerable. What to do? So on the train, he decided, he came up with the idea. We have to open up a school for these girls. A way to reinvigorate them with, with, with a, sh- a spirit, with, with community, with camaraderie, with Torah, to bring them back on firm ground and firm footing. He says the second he had the idea, he got off of the next train stop. He sent a telegram back to Stockholm. We're having an emergency meeting tonight. All the members of the Vadat Salah, everyone has to come there. Comes to the meeting that night and he presents his problem and his solution. We're going to open a school. I said to him, listen, you know, funds are really tight. But we really agree with you. You have to do, we have to do this. So let's say, here's the deal. If you find a facility, if you find us a building, We'll take care of all the rest of the funds. Okay. So what are you going to do? You got you to try, right? So he writes a letter to the Minister of the Interior of Stockholm, uh, of Sweden. Sends him a letter. What, right? Of course, they're going to say no. Of course. It's not going to help you, but you got to try. He gets a letter back. We love your idea. How many buildings do you need? He says, we'll start with one. And my grandfather went from camp to camp announcing to the girls what the plan is, and he recruited. And in the fall of 1945, they opened up a school in the island of Lidingo, which is adjacent, close to Stockholm. They found a perfect building, sponsored by the government, and they opened up a school for about 100 girls. And some of them were so traumatized, they forgot the olive base. They couldn't read. And my grandmother, incidentally, 
she was a teacher in said school. And that's how my grandparents met. She herself came from one of the most prestigious rabbinical families in all of Lithuania. She was born in Slobodka. Her father was the dean of the yeshiva in Slobodka, and her grandfather was also the spiritual dean of the yeshiva. And she said that she was so horrified that after the war, she didn't even remember how to say ashray. And she was so embarrassed to tell it to anyone until she read an account of a great yeshiva student who also forgot how to say ashray. And she said, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up about that. And she wrote a book, in fact, about her Holocaust experiences and all the miracles that happened, how, how she survived. But they had to start with, with Olive Base, with just getting the girls back into, in, into anything. And these are girls from the, from the best, family, best Jewish families that were just there, uh, abandoned by everyone they know. Their whole family is, passed, is perished. And they were able to instill and infuse lifeblood back into these girls. My grandfather himself did not run the school. He came in once a week to give, her, to give one, one class. I'm going to read to you an account from an upcoming biography of my grandfather about what happened in this school. The staff of this school was entirely committed to the education of these girls with a fatherly love and treated them as if they were their own daughters and took care of them in every matter as a parent, as a father and mother, literally. And this was not a simple thing. These were girls that went through all the traumas and the pains and the suffering, were years in the ghettos, were separate from their parents. They were for many, many years by themselves, alone, without parents. The only one in their city that survived and they had to, they were raised and were reinvigorated with life, with a lot of wisdom, a lot of joy, a lot of patience. In fact, if you're interested, there is a book written about this school and everything that happened in there. But they succeeded with the help of the Almighty above and beyond what could even be imagined. The girls progressed and were solidified and even studied with such intensity that there was even a traveling rabbi who came to the school and said, this place looks like a yeshiva. In 1948, the entire yeshiva, the entire school, picked up and moved to Israel and these girls actually continued studying until they all got married and they all developed their own families. There's actually today tens of thousands of Jewish descendants from those several hundreds of girls that were there in this school for several years after the Holocaust. And I'm thinking, you know, my grandfather used to always talk about his experiences, you know, just how his whole life ended up, how he ended up in Sweden to begin with, and the roles that he had over there to, to fulfill, and how he felt that the Almighty is holding his hand and guiding him in a way that he's able to maximize his, uh, his activities and his efforts during a time where the nation needed it most. And I think, broadly speaking, going back to our central theme, you know, a lot of people could have a lot of really good ideas. And a lot of people could have, be very well-meaning. But when you see someone who takes action and is impacted by what they encounter, and is galvanized to do something and to really invest their efforts when the need arises, I think that's a reflection of someone who has the spiritual vitality and spiritual awareness that Musser imparts. And I think maybe the lesson for us is that in our lives, you know, thank God we don't have uh, such terrible things like the Holocaust going on, but it doesn't mean that this story cannot be used for us as a guiding light of what we ought to be, the attitude that we ought to 
adopt in our lives to be always ready and on the prowl to see spiritual opportunities and to be alive in our spiritual world. A good tool to use to, to, to achieve that is, is Musser. I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank you all for inviting me here. And this was amazing, fantastic, and I hope you enjoyed. Thank you.